This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Garmin, makers of the all-new Phoenix 6X Pro Solar GPS Watch. The first Garmin smartwatch with a solar panel built into the display. And here at the podcast, we like solar power, especially producer Robbie Carver, who wears his Phoenix every day and now spends so much time on his bike that the only place we could get him to talk about the watch was out on a ride. So, I recently moved from Portland, Oregon to this tiny mountain town in rural Washington state. And instead of just road riding everywhere, I've been finding that I've been doing a ton of mountain biking and trail running, backpacking and cross country skiing and downhill in the winter. And I really wanted a device that could track all of those different activities. And so I did my research and I became an unabashed Phoenix fanboy. Like most fitness watches, the Phoenix 6X Pro Solar gives you data on power, heart rate, and mapping. Like few other fitness watches, it can also help you acclimatize to high altitudes by gauging your blood oxygen saturation. And unlike any other fitness watch that can do all those things, it uses the energy of the sun to extend battery life. I can see it. There's this pretty rad little graph telling me how much sunlight is stemming the battery drain on the watch. The Phoenix 6X also comes preloaded with global topo maps, including ski maps for over 2,000 mountain resorts around the world. Even my little one-chair ski hill is mapped, each run colored by difficulty. I mean, how cool is that? The Phoenix 6X comes in a variety of sizes, colors, and options. Robbie's is titanium with the orange band, but you can see them all and pick out the right one for you at Garmin.com. That's G-A-R-M-I-N.com. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the science of survival. I just remember standing in the front yard saying bye to my neighbors across the street. Everybody was leaving and getting prepared, and we just stayed and waited, and then there it hit. Like most fires, the car fire started small, really small. On July 23rd of 2018, an RV driving through Northern California blew a tire on State Highway 299. The couple driving the RV pulled over to the side of the road, but not before a tiny spark from the wheel, riding on its rim, flew off into the dry grasses beyond the shoulder. It might as well have been a match on gasoline. Over the next few days, the fire quickly grew to become one of the worst in California history. By the time it was contained, it had destroyed almost 2,000 buildings and killed seven people. You might remember hearing about the fire on the news because it spawned a massive fire tornado, only the second ever recorded. Meteorologists examining the damage afterwards estimated that the vortex had generated winds of up to 165 miles an hour. If there's any time that it would make sense to run for your life, it's in the face of an out-of-control wildfire that's generating tornadoes. But that's not what Gary and Lori Lyon did as the flames approached their home in the city of Reading. They stayed and they waited, and then they fought. Outside contributor Stephanie Joyce has the story on why, in an era of increasingly intense and devastating fires, someone would dare to try and fend off an inferno.
facing down a wildfire was never Lori Lyon's plan. It wasn't her plan on Monday when the car fire started 15 miles west of the Lyon's house. It wasn't her plan on Thursday afternoon when the car fire made a dramatic run towards the city of Reading. And it still wasn't her plan at 7 o'clock on Thursday evening when the fire seemed like it was about to jump the Sacramento River, the last barrier keeping it safely away from the Lyon's house in the Lake Reading Estates subdivision. In fact, at that moment, Lori's only plan was finding her husband, Gary, which is why she was running down the river trail behind their house. Gary had taken off down the trail half an hour earlier on his bike. He'd wanted to get a better view of the fire and to see if it was, in fact, going to jump the river. She was not real happy with that as it, we, it separated us and, you know, there's this fire coming our way. There isn't a lot of overlap between Lori and Gary's accounts of what happened the night of the car fire. But on that particular point, they're in complete agreement. I did not want him to go. I didn't want him to go because I didn't want him to leave me, and I was afraid for him to go to the fire. To make things worse, it wasn't long after Gary left that Lori realized she had no way of getting in touch with him. I kept calling and calling, and he he didn't answer me. We just didn't have a reception for some reason. And uh, so I started getting afraid because people were driving down our street yelling to leave, leave. It's coming, it's coming our way. The fire was indeed coming their way, as Gary had just learned. It had jumped the river. When Gary saw that, he turned around and started pedaling back towards their house. In the meantime, Lori had also made the decision to head back, although it took some persuading from a concerned neighbor. She said, Lori, you got to turn around. The fire is right. It's coming. It's right there. And so I ran back to my house and pulled my car out and got Gary's truck. And I started packing everything that I could think of, all of our, you know, enough clothes and our, all our business paperwork, um, things from my mom, you know, pictures. And um, then Gary came back and he said it jumped the river. So we got to we got to get prepared. And I still didn't know we weren't going to leave <laughs> at that point. Gary had actually started preparing to stay earlier in the day. He's 68 now and retired, but for decades, he was a firefighter with Cal Fire, the state fire agency. He'd been following the car fire all week, and at first, it didn't seem like anything to worry about. He went to a briefing about it the day after the fire started. The team that was had the fire at that time seemed very positive that they were going to be able to get in additional control lines uh, during the day. This is Tuesday and, um, you know, get a handle on this fire. Even though things initially seemed under control, Gary kept a close eye on the weather as the week progressed. On Thursday morning, the forecast was calling for a record-breaking 113 degrees, with the potential for a westerly wind, which could blow the fire toward the city. And I actually sent an email out to our neighborhood watch folks and just kind of saying that if the news reports are correct and where the fire currently is, there is potential for it to uh, come into our neighborhood. Uh, that, that email, I had to be very cautious because I didn't want to panic anybody, but I wanted to people start thinking in those terms. The news that a wildfire might hit Redding shouldn't have come as a surprise to anyone. 
It's one of the hottest, driest cities in California, and it's surrounded by extremely flammable vegetation. But of course, over the last century, we've gotten very good at suppressing wildfires. We're in the middle of a residential area. You know, the fire's not going to come bombing through here is kind of the uh, mindset, I think, of most people that live in residential areas. Even so, Gary started preparing, just in case. There are lots of well-documented ways to make your house less likely to burn in a wildfire, starting with defensible space. Gary already had that, so he focused on the house itself. As it got later into the afternoon, I did start stretching out hose lines in uh, strategic places on my property. I laddered the roof of my house. I laddered the roof of my shop. And when you say hose lines, you mean like garden hoses? Yes, that's, yeah, unfortunately, that's, that's all we had. Lori saw Gary pulling out the hoses and the ladders, but she chalked it up to her firefighter husband being overly cautious about a fire that was still a dozen miles to the west. It just seemed like it was so far away, I couldn't believe it would come all the way to our house. So I really hadn't panicked at that point. Lori works as an administrator for the local school district, and it was the last week before summer vacation ended. So she was head down on Thursday, trying to get through her to-do list. It wasn't until they were in the backyard in the early evening that she realized the fire really was getting close. So when Gary took off on his bike, they hadn't had a chance to talk yet about what they would do if the fire actually came to their neighborhood. The car fire taking over Redding, California. Okay, if you can get out safely, get out, okay? A wall of flames causing emergency evacuations. As I entered the cul-de-sac at the end of my street, um, the police were there evacuating and uh, telling everybody to get out. I uh, notified the officer that I was a retired fireman and that I would be staying. They evacuate everybody at Lake Reading to stay. I was advised that, you know, don't expect to have somebody come back and rescue you because you've made this decision, and I accept that responsibility. There are two guys that went down to the river on the river trail. Okay. And I kept telling them to come out because the fire's coming, but they're not listening. I was shocked because I really still thought we were going to leave. That's why I packed up both cars. But he he never had any intention of leaving, and I, I think he thought, well, if I wanted to leave, I would, I would go, you know, but I wasn't going to leave him. Please do not dilly-dally get your items that you need to get out. The fire is moving very quickly. When a wildfire is threatening your home, Authorities here in the U.S. universally agree that the only reasonable thing to do is evacuate. But Gary obviously disagrees. In my opinion, if an able-bodied, especially an experienced able-bodied person, can stay behind and help protect their home, there is a higher likely that the uh, home will be saved. That idea might seem crazy that any ordinary person stands a chance of saving their home in the face of a wildfire. But there's actually a lot of evidence to support Gary's view. Most homes don't burn from contact with a flame front, the fast-moving, high-intensity part of the wildfire. Instead, they burn when embers land in a gutter full of pine needles or get into an attic vent and start a small fire. With everyone evacuated and a limited number of fire engines, There's no one around to put out that small fire, so it becomes a big fire. But if someone is there, they can put out the small fire pretty easily and prevent the house from burning. At least, that's the theory. 
But of course, if something goes wrong, the consequences can be literally life and death. By the time Gary and Lori made the decision to stay, the car fire had already killed one person. But they didn't know that. So along with a handful of their neighbors, they got ready to fight. I told Lori that she needed to put long pants on, something with long sleeves, and uh, boots. Um, I did the same. I, we were all in summer clothes, you know, shorts and sandals. So I immediately changed clothes, put boots on, long pants, long sleeve shirt, found headlamps. Gloves obviously were a, uh, a good thing to have as well. But that's about as far as I could uh, get myself ready, not still being in the fire service. I had no real protective gear. To Lori, who'd never been in or even really near a wildfire before, this was all overwhelming. She had no idea what to expect. You know, then all of a sudden Gary left and he went across the street and he was in everybody's backyard. Then I called him and said, how come you're not here with me? And he said, you're fine there. Just, you just need to go back and forth, back of the house and just keep, you know, hosing down the roof and hosing down embers that could come our way. They hadn't got there yet, but he was kind of telling me what to do and, and um, just, you know, giving me instruction that way and was helping all the other people's homes, which is what he does, and that's their how those homes were more um, threatened than ours, and he knew I was safe, but I didn't know I was safe. <laughs> safe might be a bit of an exaggeration, but a well-prepared and actively defended house can be safer than the alternatives. In Australia, enormous wildfires are common, and investigators studying past fires there have concluded that most people die when trying to flee at the last minute. They get trapped by downed trees and power lines and burn up in their cars trying to reach safety. So since the early 90s, the Australian government's official policy has been that homeowners should leave early before the fire gets anywhere near a community or prepare, stay, and defend their homes. As a result, there's a lot more emphasis on making houses fire-resistant. That policy is generally considered pretty radical here in the U.S., although there are several communities in California built with defensibility in mind. Gary and Lori's neighborhood is definitely not one of them. And when the fire finally arrived, Lori was pretty sure she'd made a terrible mistake. When it finally started coming down the cul-de-sac, it was just really orange and dark and all of a sudden I could tell when it hit the first house because um, the propane tanks just started going off and the, you can hear the crackling from the fire and I mean just looking down a road it just poof you know up and uh, when that with the heat from the fire uh, I wore contacts and it, they just felt like they were going to glue to my eyes. The heat from it was so strong, and the wind was, and the sound of the helicopters was uh, totally like a war zone. That was, that was just so scary. Despite being absolutely terrified, Lori followed the instructions Gary had given her, running back and forth, spraying down anything that might catch on fire. Meanwhile, Gary stayed across the street, trying to save his neighbors' houses. It was heroic, but it was also practical. A burning house generates a lot of heat and embers. So in a dense suburban neighborhood, once one house catches fire, there's often a domino effect. 
By saving his neighbors' houses, Gary would also be saving his own. But in a lot of cases, his neighbors hadn't exactly made it easy for him. Because everybody in, in my house is the same way, has a cedar or redwood fence that um, borders their property and attaches to the house at some point. And if they catch fire, they will just burn right to your house. It's a fuse. Then there was the bark mulch, the kind that people love to use for landscaping. The winds were so significant, they were picking that stuff up, they were catching on fire, and then they were flying out in front of the uh, fire uh, a significant distance, landing in dry material and starting new fires. Uh, the, the thing I, I found kind of funny, even at that time, when all this chaos was going on, is the garden hoses were were totally designed, and rightfully so, to make it to the uh, strawberry planter box or the apple tree. Uh, some of them were just cut off at the end because they don't need them to water plants. But when you're trying to fight a fire and have the water shoot out, <laughs> having a, putting your thumb over the end of a garden hose is not the most uh, uh, preferred way. And, so you're uh, actually having to, like, tap the end of the hose with your thumb. In some, cases, yeah, in some cases, that happened. Fires aren't like tsunamis. They can be raging in one place and relatively calm in others, depending on the winds and fuels available. As Gary went up and down the street, he was mostly fighting a low-intensity backing fire, burning downhill, and a few small fires started by embers. But even in those relatively calm conditions, it didn't take long for things to get out of hand. Down at the end of the street, a small fire in one house blew up before Gary could get to it. And pretty soon, the house next to it was up in flames too. Suddenly, Gary was very aware of the fact that he was trying to fight a wildfire with garden hoses. I even... <laughs> People will laugh at this. I call, I dialed 911 three different times trying to convince the operator that put me in contact with a strike team leader or somebody because I needed engines where I was located. Uh-huh. <laughs> three times I called because, you know, I'm watching people's houses and I know the house is going to burn because there's nothing we can do with a garden hose. And I know that if we'd had an engine down there, that might not have happened. But, you know, the city was so overwhelmed and impacted in every direction that there's just not an engine for every house. And, and that's just, I, I know that. Back at their house, Lori was having her own doubts fighting a wildfire with a garden hose. Running back and forth in the dark with smoke burning her eyes, she'd fallen, cutting open her knee and spraining her thumb. And it seemed like no matter how much water she sprayed on their house, it just wasn't enough. The embers were just coming down. It was just raining embers, and I, like I couldn't get things wet enough fast enough that was just raining embers on me. The embers were one problem. The flames were another. At first, they stayed mostly in front of the house, on the side away from the river. But then the wind shifted direction, and suddenly the vegetation behind their house was on fire, too. And that's when I called Gary, and I said, I think, you know, I might die because I was like surrounded by them, the flame. Lori's escape plan, if it came to that, had been to run down to the river. 
But now, with the fire behind her house, that route was cut off. At the top of the episode, we heard about Garmin's all-new Phoenix 6X Pro Solar GPS watch and how it's been the perfect fit for producer Robbie Carver. The Phoenix offers solar charging to extend the battery life, mapping for over 2,000 ski resorts around the world, and Pace Pro, a first-of-its-kind feature that's been particularly useful for Robbie as he figures out how to approach a sport he never thought he'd be into, running. I only started trail running this year, and uh, I'm not nearly as good at it as I am on a bike. And one of the things I've been finding really challenging is being able to pace myself correctly. Usually I go out too hard and just end up doing a hike by the end of it. And this uh, new Pace Pro feature on the Phoenix has been really helpful with that, especially given how uh, up and down the trails are around where I live. Pace Pro provides real-time pacing guidance during your activity as you move along a course and adjust to uphills, downhills, and flats. Yeah. I can see my current pace, I can see my target pace, how much longer I have to go in this split, and uh, how far ahead or behind I am on my overall effort. If you want to go deep into the data, you can get training status estimates and your environmentally adjusted VO2 max, which accounts for heat and elevation to give you a more accurate reading of your current fitness and training output. Kind of takes so much of the guesswork out of knowing how I'm expending my effort. I can run, pay attention to what it's telling me, and uh, know that I'm on target, regardless of my elevation gain or loss. And that's pretty cool. There are more features on the Phoenix 6X than we could ever tell you about in a podcast ad. But basically, it's the most advanced, coolest fitness tracker of all time. Find out more about everything that it can do and pick your watch at Garmin.com. Even in Australia, where staying behind to fight a fire has long been considered a viable option, the government has been reevaluating in recent years as fires have become more intense and unpredictable. Back in 2009, 173 people died in a single day in a cluster of fires that came to be known as Black Saturday. Many of those people had stayed behind to defend their homes. After a lengthy investigation, the government concluded that in some cases, those homes were simply indefensible. The fire was so intense that nothing could have saved them. Official policy hasn't changed in response to that. The Australian government still recognizes staying as a viable option in low and moderate intensity fires. But there's more emphasis now on evacuating when fire conditions are extreme, like they were the day of the car fire in Reading. One battalion chief calls it unprecedented how the fire rolled through the city. The wildfire nearly doubling in size in just 12 hours. This is that new normal, that unpredictability, the large explosive growth fires. Back on Harlan Drive, Gary was witnessing the domino effect play out right in front of him. Three houses in a row had burned, and the vinyl siding on a fourth was starting to melt. If you don't uh, cool the fire down, the radiant heat is just going to impinge on the house next to it, and it's eventually going to catch fire from the radiant heat or the embers from the existing fire. 
and unfortunately a uh, garden hose was not going to uh, be enough to cool the fire down to keep it from spreading once it was fully involved like they were. But just as things at the fourth house were starting to look grim, a battalion chief arrived in his pickup. It wasn't a fire engine, but it was something. And I asked him if he had uh, any extinguishers or anything to help fight the fire. And he said, yeah, I have an extinguisher in the back and I have a pressurized water can. So I grabbed those and uh, and, it, and it worked great until it ran out. <laughs> Can't imagine, you know, trying to fight a house fire with literally a fire. <laughs> well, remember, fire starts small and this fire was just impinging on this house and starting to melt some of the siding. So it wasn't fully involved. And the other house was so far gone that uh, you just had to cool parts of it that was causing the uh, radiant heat to uh, melt the the adjacent siding. So I wouldn't call it fighting a house fire. You were just cooling down by this time uh, the uh, remnants of the house that had burned down. Back at their house, Lori was still working to keep it from suffering the same fate. She'd talked to Gary on the phone, but hadn't seen him since the fire started. But, you know, when I'd go, when I'd run to the front of the house, I got a view of all the houses down in our cul-de-sac burning. And, I, you know, I didn't know where Gary was because he was behind their homes trying to keep them um, safe. And so just looking down the road and there was no engines and watching those homes burn was just horrific. But there was nothing to do but keep fighting the fire. So Lori ran back and forth and back and forth. And then after an hour or maybe two, neither Gary nor Lori can say for sure. Suddenly things got quiet. I realized it's past that the fire's past our homes now and the helicopters had stopped and it just got quiet and that was the best sound ever. I just knew that I made it. Around the time the fire started to die down, an engine did finally show up in the neighborhood. Gary knew the firefighters driving it. One of my friends on the first engine to arrive said, Chief, you want a Gatorade? And my mouth was so dry. And I had even started to cramp up at one point in time, I assume from dehydration. And that Gatorade never tasted so good. It went down. Oh. <laughs> Seems kind of funny that all this chaos, a, a nice cold drink of Gatorade was, man, it was awesome. I called everybody and I told them that we were we made it and our house made it. And uh, it, it took us a few hours to, I mean, we didn't really go to sleep. We sat on the couch in the pitch dark and just talked for a while. and uh, You know, debriefed. She wanted to know what I was doing, and I wanted to know what she was doing and, and uh, how she was doing. Not surprisingly, Gary was doing much better than Lori. I, you know, I guess to me, because I'm a retired firefighter, it seemed like another day at the office, only I was using smaller diameter hoses. Um, but uh, I never, on this particular case, felt that I was in danger.
But once the sun came up, it quickly became clear that Gary and Lori had very narrowly avoided being in serious danger. In their cul-de-sac at the end of Harlan Drive, six homes had burned, but many more were still standing, including, of course, theirs. Just a block away, it was a totally different story. I just couldn't believe what I was seeing with the trees uprooted and uh, the, the roofs and chimneys blown off of rooftops um, and, and the trail. You know, there was a kind of a very distinct trail uh, that this fire or whirlwind or whatever event came through there left. I'm not sure it would have been survivable if somebody stayed down there. If that fire NATO would have came through, we would have been, we wouldn't have made it. We would have not had a chance. Across the world, fire behavior is becoming more extreme and unpredictable, thanks to years of aggressive fire suppression combined with climate change. Keeping fires at bay, like we did in the past, isn't an option anymore. We're going to have to learn to live with fires but that's going to be harder than ever. Staying, like Lori and Gary did, has always been the riskier decision, if leaving is an option. But historically, a well-prepared, actively defended home had a good chance of surviving a fire. That's not necessarily the case anymore. But even knowing that a few hundred yards down the street, he might have been dead, Gary says he'd do it again. Well, there's no way of predicting where that's going to come. And under the same circumstances, I would, I would stay initially. And if things change, uh, I may change my mind. But in this case, I didn't feel threatened by what was happening a block down the street. Surprisingly, Lori agrees. She's still traumatized by the experience of fighting the fire. The sound of helicopters brings her back to that night. But she says she'd do it again if it meant saving their house. Probably still be just as scared. (laughs) But I, I would stay. Gary and Lori probably won't ever have to make a choice about whether to stay or go ever again. But having to actually face down a fire has got them both thinking more about how to be prepared for one. They've already had conversations with some of their neighbors about things like fencing and hoses. And they hope it doesn't take more devastating fires for people elsewhere to start doing the same. Gary says for too long, homeowners have let appearance trump fire resistance. But I think that there's going to be a change in in those philosophies here in the near future. That's Stephanie Joyce speaking with Gary and Lori Lyon. This episode was written and produced by Stephanie with very light editing by me, Michael Roberts. Music by Robbie Carver. This episode was brought to you by Garmin, maker of the new Phoenix 6X Pro Solar GPS watch. The first Garmin smartwatch with a solar panel built into the display. At this very moment, Robbie Carver is probably wearing his Phoenix or riding his bike or out running on a trail. Pick up yours at Garmin.com. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Integrated Media and distributed by PRX. We'll be back next week 